Well, it's usually about once or twice a year that we come to a sermon passage that is a little awkward for us because it repeatedly uses the word circumcision. Today's one of those days. The Bible does not talk about circumcision to make us squirm. The Bible mentions circumcision because this removal of foreskin was God's idea. The Lord commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and all his male offspring as a visible sign of the covenant relationship that God had initiated with Abraham and his descendants. Now, do we find his choice of a covenant sign just a little bit strange? Perhaps. Does it make us a little bit uncomfortable when the pastor keeps saying circumcision over and over again? Of course. But we, we must be willing to set aside any awkwardness and listen attentively to this section of God's Word because as strange as it may seem, these verses in Romans are particularly relevant to people like us today. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to the end of Romans chapter 2. You can find it printed in your bulletin or you can look in the Bible. Romans comes right after the book of Acts and before the letters to the Corinthians. Romans chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 25 through 29 today. Romans 2 beginning in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And even though there are certainly some cultural barriers in the Bible, we thank You, O Lord, for faithful generations throughout history, for passing down the truth that we might better understand the context of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the Scriptures in our own native language that we might understand them. And so, Lord, we pray that You would work today through Your Word. Father, use me today to be a faithful proclaimer of Your Word. Spirit, work through the Word today, opening our hearts and minds to gladly receive Your Word, to humbly sit under it and be corrected by it, and to let it shape us and empower us to go and live as Your people, trusting in Your promises. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this morning, as we look at our passage, we're just going to try and do it in just two kind of simple ways here. We are going to look at what was Paul's point back then? What was his point 
in regards to circumcision and the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians as well. And then what principle was he making that then applies to us today at the church? So kind of, what was it back then? How does that translate? Because this particular issue doesn't seem to be our particular issue. So Paul's big point in these chapters, as we've seen over the last month or so, is that nobody is safe from God's judgment. Nobody has an excuse that keeps them out of God's judgment. You cannot plead ignorance of God's commands. You cannot say, well, I've been a good person. You cannot say, well, I know right from wrong, even if I've not done it, that he's thrown away all of those excuses. And now he dismantles one more excuse, one supposed source of security, and that is circumcision. He's trying to get people to ask, would having God's covenant sign protect you from God's judgment? Apparently, some Jewish people around that time believed that merely being circumcised, having that sign, protected you from God's judgment. They believed that men who had that covenant sign and the women who were either wives or daughters of these men would be protected from God's wrath. And so circumcision was viewed as this clear, visible sign of safety for the Jews. It was often viewed as the guarantee that you would receive favor rather than judgment from God. And so what does Paul have to say about that? Well, in verse 25, here's what he says. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So Paul is writing here about the value of circumcision. And he's talking about saving value. Can it protect you from God's judgment against sinners? Well, yeah. If you keep the law, okay, well, what if we haven't kept the law? Well, yeah, then it doesn't protect you. Oh. And so Paul is showing here that merely being circumcised is not going to protect anyone from God's judgment. Well, why is that? Well, it's because God cares more about the heart than our skin. He cares more about our character than our physical attributes. Consider that Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel 16, that Samuel was looking for a tall, handsome, strong man to be king. And when he saw Eliab, he's like, yep, that's the guy I want as my king right there. But that focus on external attributes was how Saul ended up being king. Saul was also tall, handsome, strong, More importantly, though, disobedient, ignoring the Lord's commands. And so God was looking beyond external appearances to the heart, which is why God chose David. Now, notice, though, David still handsome. So God does not think external factors are bad. Being tall and handsome does not disqualify someone, but they are not what ultimately matter to God. The Lord primarily cares about the heart and our obedience to him. And Paul demonstrates that with a little hypothetical scenario in verses 26 and 27. He tries to prove that God cares more about obedience than rituals. And he says, essentially, imagine 
we've got this uncircumcised Gentile, so some non-Jewish person, and they've obeyed all of God's commands except the command to be circumcised. And now imagine you've got this circumcised Jew over here who has disobeyed every command except the command to be circumcised. Who do we think God is going to show more favor to? The idea is it would be the obedient, uncircumcised Gentile. Paul is demonstrating here that external signs are relatively easy to obey. Now, I am sure the surgical procedure of circumcision was not a picnic in the ancient world, but it was over relatively quick. It didn't take much effort. And though it changed your appearance, it didn't necessarily change your life. And in this way, it's pretty easy. And you could feel secure that I completed this ritual and feel like maybe I don't need to worry about continuing to obey God. This is in keeping with some of what the Old Testament says about how God desires obedience more than sacrifices. Sacrifices are good and they're commanded by God. They are costly, but they're also kind of relatively easy to obey especially compared to loving your neighbor or seeking justice for the poor. God has always cared about an obedient heart more than mere completion of rituals. And Paul makes that point even more strongly in verse 27. He says, He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, who have circumcision, but break the law. See, the Jews had all of this knowledge and privilege, but they disobeyed the law. He's saying failure to obey all of this that you have been given will reveal that you are being condemned by these outsiders who have done much more. Our New Testament reading was Jesus giving two of these examples. The pagan people of Nineveh repented immediately When Jonah said, repent, instant obedience. And the queen of Sheba down south in Africa traveled upon hearing reports that there is this wise and just and wealthy king Solomon. She just got on her camel or whatever and just took off. Like, I got to go meet this guy. Jesus says that these obedient outsiders will rise up at judgment day to shame and condemn these circumcised Jews who not only possessed the law, but literally encountered the Son of God, the Messiah, and rejected Him. He's saying the outside stuff doesn't matter if you've missed the heart of it. Paul brings his critique to its conclusion in verses 28 and 29 where he writes this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now, at first glance, this sounds kind of earth-shattering, that Jews aren't really Jews, even if they're descended from Abraham and circumcised in the flesh. And you're like, Paul, that doesn't seem to be what the Bible teaches. Are you undermining the Old Testament? No. Because the Old Testament also spoke of this need for an inner change. Deuteronomy 10.16 says this, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart 
and be no longer stubborn. So something had to be done that was more than skin deep to get rid of the stubbornness of sin. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire because of the evil of your deeds. The prophet there implies that mere physical circumcision will not save people from God's judgment. That something inward and spiritual must occur to ensure salvation. So these words from Paul in the Old Testament show us that external signs are just that. They are signs. That means they are meant to point beyond themselves to something else. And she might be thinking like, well, what on earth did circumcision point to? Well, a lot, actually. It signified that a person had been set apart as different from the world by God, meant to live differently for God. It signified that God had chosen them since most Jewish boys were circumcised before they were old enough to choose God themselves. It was on the reproductive organ signifying that God claimed even our deepest and most private desires and that these truths were meant to be passed on to our procreation, to our children, that they would trust in God's promises as well. It also signified that if you turned away from God, you would be cut off like that dead foreskin. That's a whole lot of stuff that circumcision signified. And it's no wonder that the Jews highly valued this covenant sign. But Paul shows us that circumcision is not merely a matter of the flesh. It is a sign pointing to something in our hearts. We are meant to look beyond the sign to what it signifies. That instead of trusting that my flesh has been marked, a Jew was supposed to trust that God has chosen me as part of His people, that He has revealed Himself to me and my ancestors, making gracious promises that we are meant to trust with humble, joyful obedience. It was meant to point beyond itself to that truth. Now again, we're still talking about stuff that might be weird, and so try to think about it this different way. Imagine that you won this big Powerball jackpot. Okay? That's a fun thing to think about. You've got this little ticket of paper that you had in your hand and the numbers were called. You're like, yay! And you win and you celebrate. And now, imagine the next morning you're just showing up at Walmart or or Best Buy or wherever you want to go, Bass Pro Shops. You're showing up there and you just load up like three carts of stuff and you push them to the cash register and you give the cashier and you're like, check this out. She's not going to let you pay for that stuff with your lottery ticket. That's not money. Now, it's really good. It is valuable. But it points beyond itself to the reality. To the money that you actually have. And it makes sense that someone, after winning a big Powerball jackpot, would frame that ticket and give thanks for that ticket and all that it symbolizes. But in itself, it's a piece of paper. It's nothing. 
And so signs are meant to point beyond themselves, that they are nothing on their own. They only point to something that's truly important. And so if that is how the Jews were tempted to view the sign of circumcision, then how might we in the church today be tempted to view some of our external markers and signs? What are some easy external markers that we can be tempted to trust in for our salvation and safety? I want to quickly just buzz through probably five of the most common of these. And the first and most obvious is our baptism. That just as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, so now baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And it signifies very similar truths, except now the sign is available to both men and women, boys and girls. And we can be tempted to think that because we are baptized, we are safe from God's judgment. But merely being baptized with water is no guarantee of salvation. There must also be an inner work of the Spirit. Or maybe, secondly, we trust in the other sacrament of the church, the Lord's Supper or communion. And we might think that because we take communion that we are safe from God's judgment, that we know what the elements represent when we eat and drink them, and so surely we are safe. But if we only outwardly partake without trusting in what is signified, there is no value in what we do. Third, we can trust in the sign of our giving in the offering plate. That just as Old Testament believers could point to the fact that I offered animals as sacrifices, so also today people can say, I have offered financial sacrifices and giving to the church and other ministries. But if we are trusting in the fact that we have given to the church instead of trusting what God has given to the church, we will find ourselves trusting something that cannot save. Fourth, we may trust in the fact that we are members of a church. That perhaps our family has been members of the same church for generations. And we can trust that merely being on the membership of a local role grants us some security from God's judgment. But we must look beyond the membership on a book here to membership in the body of Christ. And fifth, we may trust in our own church attendance. We may trust that we will be safe because we have regularly attended worship services Sunday after Sunday. And we make sure that we are present most Sundays and we can look to our attendance record for security. But if we are merely physically present without spiritually worshiping God from the heart, without trusting the word preached, then attendance has no value for us. Now, what can be so difficult for us today is that like circumcision, all of these five things are good things. In fact, I want every single one of you to be baptized, to take the Lord's Supper, to give generously unto the Lord, to become members of a local church, and to attend worship Sunday after Sunday. But putting your hope for salvation in any or all of those five things 
is dangerous. We cannot trust the signs themselves. We must trust what those signs point us to. And they all point us to Jesus. To our need of Him who is our Lord and Savior. Our baptism points us to Jesus as the one who washes us clean of our sin, that the water points us to the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And we don't trust the water, we trust the blood. The Lord's Supper similarly signifies Jesus' life and death in our place. And while baptism signifies this one-time change, the Lord's Supper signifies that the Lord continues to provide for His people. He gives us strength. He forgives our continued sins and we live as His children and gather around His table. And so we look beyond the bread and the wine to the Savior they represent. Giving is also a sign pointing us to Jesus who was given by the Father to us. Pointing us to Jesus who gave His entire life for us. And so now we recognize that all of our lives and all we have been given is ultimately God's. And we give back to Him out of love and thanksgiving for all He has given to us. Becoming a member points to our place in Christ. That we belong to the universal people of God from every nation and denomination that truly calls on the Lord. And so our trust is not in membership itself, but in belonging to Jesus. To being the people in His hands that He will never let go. And worshiping each Sunday is not merely checking a box. It is not just a way to keep the pastor from calling and saying, where have you been? Worshiping each week is obeying the command of God to put Him first. And we gather to praise our God. To humbly confess our sins. To receive that merciful assurance. To humbly lift our prayers. To attentively listen to His Word. To generously give back to Him. And to boldly depart and live as His witnesses here on earth. That all of these signs are good things as they point us to Jesus. But we cannot trust in them themselves. And so thinking about What Paul says here about being condemned by those who don't have what we have. Thinking about the Queen of the South. Thinking about the Ninevites. Let me paraphrase a message by Alistair Begg here for a moment. and Let me think about us standing before God after we have died at the gates of heaven standing next to the thief on the cross. So imagine you are there and the angel asks you, on what basis should we let you in? If you say, well, I've been baptized. I took communion every week. I gave into the church and his ministries. I was a member for 70 years. I attended worship week after week. I even went when I had the sniffles. If we say, these are why, would the angel not rightly say to us, isn't that stuff pretty easy? Was a heart change required in any of that? A splash of water? A sip of juice? A fraction of your money? A fraction of your time? Is that really enough? Does that keep you from judgment from God for your sins? And then Beg imagines the thief at the cross at the gate. And the angel asks, how'd you get here? I don't know. Well, 
what are you doing here? I don't know. Uh, have you been baptized? Uh, nope. Did you take the Lord's Supper? What's that? Did you give unto the church? Uh, I was a thief, actually. Were you a member of what? Did you attend worship week after week? Uh, no, sir. Well, do you at least know the Ten Commandments? No. Well, were you nice to other people? I mean, I was executed. So, I, I mean, there was that. Then what are you doing here? And Begg so powerfully says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's why. That it's because of Jesus that I can get in. The same Jesus that all of those things point to. None of them are necessary. All of them are a blessing. All of them are valuable. But they are valuable insofar as they point us to the true hope for us, which is Jesus Christ Himself. He is our hope, and He is the hope for all. And so that means for our children as well. That I want my kids to grow up and know the Bible, to be good to other people, to be members of a church, and attend a church regularly. But the only reason I want those things for my kids is because those things point to Jesus. Because more than anything, I want Jesus for them. We cannot trust in those other things, but we can pray, oh God, let those signs point. And we can use those signs and direct people towards Jesus, our ultimate hope. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you feel like you've been going through the motions. And you've just been checking boxes and trying to do the things and, and just, it's kind of what I've always done. Look at the sign and look where it's pointing you. It's pointing you to Jesus. Cry out to Him because the inward change that we need can only be done by Him through the Spirit. We can never do enough rituals, signs, membership, attendance, giving, any of it. We need Jesus and the change He can provide. May we all find that and be able to say on that judgment day, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank You for the great hope we have in the Scriptures. We thank You, Lord, for the gifts of these signs and markers that point to other things. But we pray, O oh Lord, that we would not be deceived by them, that we would not have eyes that lock on to just these signs, but that we would look beyond the signs to the things signified. Specifically, look to Jesus. Lord, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would circumcise our hearts, that You would make us clean on the inside, for we know that all the external rituals we can do can never make a dent on the inside. Only You, O oh God. And so change our hearts that we would live for You as Your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.